Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah, chapter 5. Have you noticed a theme this morning? I trust you caught that. Faithfulness. That faithfulness is what we cling to. Without God's faithfulness, all the promises mean nothing. But he is faithful, so they mean everything. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you steadfastly, unendingly love us, that your promises are sure, your word is sure, you will do all that you've told us. We're thankful. Help us this morning that we would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, that our worship in the word would be sweet, that we would be responsive to your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you hear in recent weeks our president refer to ISIS as ISIL? Did you think, did he just make a mistake did that come into your mind? Did, what, what's ISIS, ISIL? What, what's the difference between the two? Is there a difference between the, the two? Did he make a mistake? Is it a different group? Just briefly, as a, a small defining difference between the two statements, it's the same group. ISIS is the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or alternately, same ISIS, Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Sham, that Sham is representative of an area, which is more leading us to the second term, which is ISIL, which is Islamic State of Iraq and Levant. Now, I don't know if I said that word correctly, Levant or Levant, um, but that is the ISIL portion of it. And I just wanted to introduce you just very, for just a moment, at what Levant is. It's referring to this area. Here's Iraq here. And then Levant is, a, is a, another term for this area that includes Jordan and Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. And so it, it has broadened that concept out. With that, this grouping, this militant group or this terrorist group, what is their goal? What are their goals? They probably have more than one goal, but one of the elements that they try to produce is unrest. Unrest. For instance, that, that ideal of unrest is taking place right now in the wake of what happened in France. The stadiums around the United States today that will be filled with somewhere between 40 and 80 and more thousand people, the security in those locations is all ramped up. And some people on their way to the stadium will wonder, they'll, they'll be weighing, I wonder if this stadium will be a target of a terrorist attack today while I'm there. There are numerous people headed to stadiums even now, and this is on their mind. This is exactly what ISIL or ISIS is trying to accomplish, among other things, obviously. From our condition of unrest and turmoil... Where will we find peace? 
from our condition of unrest and turmoil, where will we find security? Is the world not looking for peace and security? Should the world not be looking for a ruler, a ruler who will provide real, lasting peace? And I ask you this follow-up question. Are you looking for such a ruler? One who will provide real, lasting peace. I want to tell you something. This is not news to you. But there is a ruler coming. There is a king coming. And he comes, and he comes in peace. He comes with with a peaceful rule. Take a look, please, here in Micah chapter 5. What we want to discuss this morning is the ultimate ruler is coming. The ultimate ruler is coming. In Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel." And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise him excuse me, we will rise against him, seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Notice how the people of Israel are set on edge right at the beginning of this chapter. They are on red alert. He says, muster yourselves. Prepare yourselves. Another translation of that, it's kind of a a distant translation, but it's, it's there in the Hebrew, so it's a possibility. He says, slash yourselves, you slashers. You know what that idea is? When you start cutting yourself because you know something bad is happening? That's a possibility that, that is being brought forth in this text. There's a lot to mourn here. So it could either be that concept of things are bad, cut yourself, or, hey, listen, get ready for a battle. But if we're getting ready for a battle, just know this, based on verse 1, it's not going to work out very well. When the judge of the people is being mistreated, what do you think will happen to the peasants? He says, he has laid siege against us. Now, notice how he says he, he has laid siege against us. Who is this he? Bad news, friends. Know who the he is? It's God. Muster yourselves, daughter of troops. God is warring against us. Ooh, bad news. Then he says, they, 
will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, the they now translates to the people that God used their sinfulness to enact his judgment. So God is laying siege against his people because of what? Covenant unfaithfulness, right? God had laid out a covenant before them. He says, this is what I will do. This is your responsibility. The people broke the covenant. They were unfaithful to the covenant. God says, here's the consequences of covenant unfaithfulness. He laid siege against us, and he used the people of Babylon. Now, we read this the last time we were together when Zedekiah, as the king of Judah, was brought to a place, had his sons murdered in front of him, and then they put out his eyes. So he says, muster yourself for a war, but you're not going to win the war. God is going to strike your judge on the cheek. And what happens to the people if the judge is stricken? Not good thing. So the peasant is now in real trouble. There's unrest all around. That's what's going on. This is the context that we find ourselves in. In Mark, Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. Unrest all around. Yet in the face of this turmoil, there is something to cling to. There's a beautiful transition word at the beginning of verse 2. Ready for it? It's a big one. But. Turmoil all around, but. But you. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Bethlehem, the land of bread, or the, the place of food. Ephrathah, the region in which Bethlehem resides, fruitfulness. But you, place of fruitfulness and land where there's food. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little and insignificant, though you're, you're little among the thousands of Judah or all the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. From insignificance, from a location of insignificance, we have what we would recognize as ultimate significance. Though you're little. Little in what? Little in size. Little in significance. Well, well, at the time of the writing of Micah, was there anything significant about Bethlehem? Yeah. What, what was significant about Bethlehem? David came from there. David came from Bethlehem. That's the, the height of Bethlehem's significance. Until a greater David came. Until the real ruler came. From obscurity and insignificance, the ultimate significance comes. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. The one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So let's, let's consider this for a moment. We want to consider who this is that's coming up to God out of Bethlehem. It says, yet out of you shall come forth, what does it say? To me. Come forth to me, a ruler. Take a look with me at 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. And we already talked about the fact that God brought forth David out of Bethlehem. And here we have the context in which this takes place in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel heads to Bethlehem because God directed him to do so. And he goes to the father of David. What's his name? You remember? Jesse says, I want to see your sons. Let's take a look, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. 
I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Who has he provided a king? Myself. I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you will do. You shall anoint, what does it say? For me. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town went to Bethlehem. Excuse me, sorry, I skipped read the same line again, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks, excuse me, looks at the outward appearance. Excuse me, sorry. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. What's going on? God is selecting his person. But notice how it says, For myself, in the early verses, and then... To you, or to me, or for me. This is the same wording that we have in Micah. Out of you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, out of you shall come forth to me, one, to be ruler. What does it mean, to me, or for me? The idea is, for my glory, for my purposes, to fulfill my plan. The Bible says this in numerous places. We'll just enumerate two of them. In John chapter 4 and verse 34, the Bible says this, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to what? Accomplish His work. The author of Hebrews, quoting Psalm 40, makes this statement. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He who does away with the first uh, in order to establish the second. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What we're doing is we're recognizing that just as God called David from Bethlehem for his own purposes and glory, God called Jesus from Bethlehem for his own purposes and glory. Now the outcomes are completely different, their reigns are completely different, but the origins and the purposes, amazing. God is letting us know that this one to arise from Bethlehem Ephrathah 
is after the order of David, one of David's sons, yea, David's greater son. We see the fulfillment here in Micah 5 of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We see God fulfilling his promises. We see God again as faithful. From insignificance, the ultimate significance. He's to be ruler, it says, in Israel. Back in in Micah chapter 5, we already read it. So ruler in Israel. Uh, Israel is then to be the central location. But remember, the kingdom is not a local kingdom, is it? It's a worldwide kingdom, so it would be reaching to the ends of the world. So God was raising up for himself one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So it says he's coming forth who has been going forth, right? That's the concept back in Micah chapter 5. There's one coming forth who's been going forth. It's the same one. So the one coming forth from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the one to be ruler in Israel... This one who is for God's purposes is the one that has been appearing on the scenes since the very beginning. So whenever you see some appearance of God, who you're seeing is this ruler. This ruler. Who is this ruler? It's the Son of God himself. It's the second person of the Trinity. Wherever you see an appearance of God, you're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. From this location of insignificance, is coming forth the one who has been coming forth all along. So from small to great, from smallness and weakness and ignoble, from from unwise, we have the greatest wisdom, we have the greatest nobility, we have the greatest strength, we have the greatest peace. Take a look, please, with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the way of God. Friends, mark this down in your minds. This is the way of God. The way that God works is he takes that which is small and makes it great. That which is insignificant and makes it great. That which is weak and makes it strong. That which is unwise and makes it wise. That which is unrighteous and makes it righteous. This is the way of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this glorious passage, beginning in verse 26, the Bible says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, but of him you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Listen, He just called us weak. He just called us not noble. He called us unwise. If you look at the contrast, he's calling us unrighteous. He's calling us unsanctified before, before he called us. What does he call us after he calls us? He says, in Christ, Christ has become for you everything you need. What, what, has he, what has he become for me? He's become my wisdom. Anything short in that, friends? God's wisdom in Christ, 
It's mine. My wisdom. Okay? What else has he become for me? He's become my righteousness. Anything short there? Is there any unrighteousness in Christ? No. My righteousness is pure righteousness. Sanctification, that is God setting us aside, setting us apart for holiness. Anything short in my holiness in Christ? No. How about my redemption? Nothing. Why did God do this? So that no flesh would glory in his presence. It's not my righteousness. It's not my wisdom. It's not my holiness. It's not mine at all. It's Christ's. From weakness and insignificance, God brings forth the ultimate significance. It's Christ. Jesus is our ultimate significance. This is what he's telling us. Back in Micah chapter 5, please. Take a look. Take a look. Muster yourselves, gather yourselves, oh, oh daughter of troops. Bring forth this war. You're, you're, it's not going to go well. He's, he's laid siege against us. They, the instruments of God, will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. The one whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. This, this divine king, he's come to set you free. Insignificance to significance. A second area of our consideration is this. As we look at verse 3, we'll notice that he's brought us from, or the people of Israel, from a place of exile. He's brought for them ultimate salvation. From a place of exile, he's brought for them ultimate salvation. Look at verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up. Let me ask you a question. If someone comes up against God's people, and God says, no, 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 what's going to happen to that foe? Broken, shamed, humiliated, turning tail. So if a foe comes up against God's people and is successful, what does that tell you? God said, oh, oh. That's what you want. You think that the Assyrians have something for you. Oh, you think the Babylonians have something to offer you. You think that the world has something to offer you. How do you think that's going to turn out? See, nothing can happen to the one who's walking in the power of the Spirit. Things can happen all around us. Things can happen in our presence. Things can happen to us, but nothing outside of God's purview, nothing outside of God's will. And yet, here we have God's people, Old Testament Israel, the, the chosen people, the one that God set his steadfast love and affection on. And here we have him saying, I have given you up. Just look at the book of Hosea. Lo Ami. Remember that one? Not my people. Lo Ruhama. No mercy. Why? You choose every other God and find out what those gods lead you to. God says, I've given you up. Fortunately, that's not a period. It didn't end the letter here. The next word is until. See, this is the greatness of our God. He, he'll let us taste. 
He'll, he'll give us the rope. He'll let us experience all the things we want to experience until, until he says, that's enough. That's enough. No more of that nonsense. I have what's real for you. Until. Until what? He says in verse 3, until the time that she who was in labor has given birth. Well, we've noticed this before. What, what is that? Look back over at Micah chapter 4 for just a second. Verses 9 and 10. Micah 4, verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor, be in pain, and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. What is, what's, what's happening? Well, what are these birth pangs? What's going to come forth? Well, hint, 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 hint. Verse 2 already told us what's going to come forth. But, just so we can get a, a nice picture of it, take a look at Revelation chapter 12 for a moment. You know what exile is, right? The people of Israel were overtaken in the northern tribes by the Assyrians, taken and kind of amalgamated into the people, kind of really eradicated them, essentially, by, by intermarrying them with pagan nations. The southern two tribes of Israel, known as Judah, were taken captive by the Babylonians. They were given uh, the young ones, the, the ones that showed promise. They were given education in the way of the Babylonians to try to enculturate them and, and really bring their own culture up. But God preserved them in the midst of all of that. They were in ex exile because God gave them up. But he didn't give them up unendingly. He gave them up until. And here we have a picture of this in Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. So what we have here is this until we've got the birth come forth and then skips everything about his life. Just, he's taken up. He skipped a whole bunch of stuff. Any, anything significant take place between the birth and the taken up? Probably a lot. Uh, the fact that he proved himself to be God, the fact that he fulfilled the law, the fact that he accrued real God-oriented righteousness that God would attribute to our account, the fact that he made a final payment for eternal judgment against my sin, the fact that God raised him from the dead, triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Anything significant take place? Yes, a whole bunch of stuff. Just skipped it right over. He, he was born, born, and he went up to heaven. Okay, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. So that now we're, we've got a little bit of information about this woman. It's certainly not one individual woman. It's representative of Israel. That this woman represents Israel. That she should feed her there. Excuse me, that they should feed her there, 
1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his saints, the angels, fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Big surprise. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time, in the presence of the serpent. Not to get into details here, but that would be a really nice way to say 1,260 days. It's another way. So take with that and do with that for what you want. What I want us to know about this is we've got this delivery. What's happening here? He doesn't give us all the details. He doesn't tell us about anything Jesus did while on earth. And he doesn't really tell us about the coming kingdom here. All we know is this, this one coming forth from the woman. It's exactly what Mike is trying to give us the idea of. He doesn't give us all the details. All he says is, hey, listen, there, there's these people, they're coming up against you, but don't worry, out of insignificance, the ultimate significance will come from, come forth. Uh, I'm raising up a ruler for myself to be ruler in Israel, the one that's been going forth all over the place for, from, from all time. Then he says, I've given you up until, until this one is born, until this one is born, and then it says, then God would do something else. What was he going to do? He was going to make the people come back. Take a look back in Micah chapter 5. Verse 3 again. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who was in labor has given birth. Then the remnant, that word has been used before in here, the remnant, these are the ones that God takes. Remember, they were remnant. They used to be afflicted, outcasts, and weak. He made them a remnant and a strong nation and, and embraced. Remember that? That was back in Micah chapter 4. Well, he's going to make them a remnant. Then the remnant of his, of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So he says, essentially, when this one is born forth and I bring it to full fruition, God's going to bring back his people and there's going to be salvation. This is the concept here. We see this in Zechariah 12. The Bible says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for his only son, or his only child, and weeping bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. You know what he's just saying? These people, the house of David, that's Judah, they're going to see the one who's pierced, that's the ruler and they're going to turn to him. They'll repent. They'll say, what have we done? Why? Because God's going to pour out grace and mercy. That's irresistible, friends. 
you can't miss. When God is ready to take you, you can't stop it. It's amazing. God pours out his spirit of grace and mercy. And it's like, wow, all of them. And it says in Romans chapter 11 that all Israel will be saved. That's a, that's a very large statement, isn't it? But that's what he's getting to here in Micah chapter 5. That's what he's saying in Zechariah 12. That's what he says in Romans 11. What's happening? Out of exile. When God says, I've given you up. I'm going to give you up. Out of exile. Ultimate. Real, lasting, fulfilling salvation. Friends, Jesus is our ultimate salvation. We follow a little further in this text in Micah chapter 5. As we look at chapter uh, verse 4, we note this. From cruel oppressors, from cruel oppressors, the ultimate shepherd. Look what he says in verse 4. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. We, we have this context of God giving them up and then providing the salvation that he, he grabs them. He pours his spirit of grace and mercy on them. They say, what have we done? They turn to him in, in amazing ways. And God rescues his people. There's the salvation. And then he becomes their shepherd. Uh, after all these years of them being exiled and having people treat them like dirt, think about what has happened to the Jews for years and years and years and years. The ridiculousness that they faced, whether sometimes they deserved it or not. Think about the cruel oppression that has come upon them. The ultimate shepherd. Well, let's think about this. It says, he shall stand. He shall stand. That's what it says at the beginning of verse 4. Take a look, please, at, at Psalm 2. This concept of standing is the idea of, I'm going I'm to put my king where he belongs. That's the concept here. He shall stand. In, in Psalm 2, we have this rather remarkable and very much applicable psalm. If you look at today, you read Psalm 2, you're like, yep. I see that. Look what it says, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth, what does it say? Set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together. That's a conspiracy. And who are they conspiring against? They're conspiring against the Lord. And against his anointed. Anyone have a suggestion who that anointed one might be? Well, in the context of Psalm 2, first it's David. But in its greater fulfillment, it's the anointed one, the, the Mashiach, the Messiah. Anointed is the word that we have, Christos, Christ. Against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. 
You know what that says? I don't want what you're offering me. I want none of those rules and regulations and those restrictions. I don't want you to dictate to me and be my king. I will think that the world came from nothing, that it just miraculously appeared, and suddenly these, these substances combined and blew up, and, and, and out of nowhere this primordial ooze, and then people came forth out of monkeys, and the ridiculousness that comes forth. You know what that's? That all comes back down to this. The people conspire against him. I will not have your way. I will not have your will. I want nothing to do with you. I'll find my own God. Thank you very much. By the way, that God will be me. That's the context. Now verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. I don't think it's a maniacal laugh. I just think it's, it's like, really? Really? I don't think that's going to work out well for you. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Listen to what he says. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I've set my king. <laughs> Micah just said, and he shall stand. That's the same idea. He's saying the king will reign. His feet will be there and he will rule. This is the first step. I wonder what kind of a ruler he'll be. Well, we see him ruling with a rod of iron in places, right? We see that. But is that, is that really the, the greatest descriptor of this ultimate shepherd? I don't think so. I think that's an element that says, I will squash all rebellion. All who's, who want to orchestrate life a different way than the way that I'm offering you, which is, I know, the best way. I will squash all of that. But that's not the, the characteristic of his kingdom. The characteristic of his kingdom is one of the ultimate shepherd. Listen, it says, and he shall feed them. He shall feed his flock. I want to tell you about this, this one, this ruler who's going to come forth out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. I want to tell you about this, this shepherd, this ruler, this one who's for God, this one who's going to rule in Israel, this one who is, whose goings forth have been of old. I want to tell you about this one who will feed this flock. His name is Jesus. And he's told us a few things about himself. And I want you to follow me along at a couple of scripture passages, please. First of all, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This shepherd called himself the good shepherd. Now, when you think of a good shepherd, you think, man, make sure you take care of that, that sheep, make sure it's fed, make sure it's clean, make sure you take the bugs out of it, its, um, its ears, make sure that if it gets stuck upside down with its legs dangling in the air and it can't get up, make sure you put it, set it aright so it's on its feet because otherwise all the blood will drain out of it, it'll die on its back, take care of it. Okay? This, this sheep, he says, I'm the door of the sheep. So no one gets into the sheepfold unless they go through the door. He would lay at the, the one entrance to the sheepfold, and he would say, you're coming in. No one else, just my sheep. I'm going to bring them in. This is the door. This shepherd just doesn't take care of feeding and protecting them. This shepherd, this shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, not just figuratively. It's not like, oh, hey, listen, I'd die for you if something bad happened. I'll tell you, friends, I want to tell you right now, as sure as you're sitting there, there have been people that have come into your lives that have told you they'd die for you and they were lying to you. 
I've met a few of those folks. They wouldn't lay down their lives for anybody, just themselves. It's all they care about. So they just dismiss, dismiss their spouse. Psh, whatever. Do your thing. This shepherd doesn't just figuratively lay down his life for you. He actually lays down his life to you. Listen to what he says in John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is the good shepherd. He gives his life. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one, what does it say? One shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up. This command I have received from my father. This is the good shepherd. It's talking about dying for you. But you know what? There's more to this story, friends. He's not just the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 13. Right at the end of the chapter, just about, verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may you... uh, May he make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, in John 10, the emphasis is on laying down his life. On Hebrews 13, the emphasis is upon God raising him up. You see that? You see the, the emphasis on raising him up? He raised up that great shepherd of the sheep. Now look over at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Not only is he a good shepherd who lays down his life, not only is he a great shepherd because his blood was the blood of the everlasting covenant and God raised him up, but he is also the chief shepherd. And you know what, friends? He's coming again. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. When the chief shepherd appears, all the wrongs will be made right. When the chief shepherd appears, everything will be fixed. Glory, friends, glory. That's what the chief shepherd brings. As the good shepherd, he lays down his life. As the the great shepherd, he's raised up. As the chief shepherd, he comes again. This is the one that Mike is talking about. He's talking about this chief shepherd that's coming again. Just like the psalmist David said. Remember what he said in Psalm 23? Take a look there, please. The 23rd Psalm. Actually, it's it's, it's on the screen. If you want to just look at the screen behind me, it'll be fine too. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall Pursue me, follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hey, listen. 
this, this ruler coming out of Bethlehem Ephrathah, who's coming forth for God, who's been going forth since time began. He's been going forth from all of, of eternity. This one who's, who's given them up until he's born, until he gathers them together and becomes their ultimate salvation. He becomes their ultimate shepherd who stands and, and quells all rebellion and then feeds his flock and ministers to his flock and gives his life for the flock and then is raised up for their life that they might have life. And then he comes back to do what? To be their ultimate shepherd And what happens is that ultimate shepherd. Take a look back in Micah chapter 5. Just a couple more minutes. He's going to do this in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. No surprise because he is the Lord. And he does everything for the glory of God. It says, and they shall abide. And they shall abide. The word there in the ESV is to dwell secure. They shall dwell secure. He's already told us about this in Micah 4.4. Take a look there. It says, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. How can you be so sure? For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You know what the Lord of hosts is? He's the Lord of the armies. Martin Luther wrote that great song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and he wrote, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is his name. Listen, he says you're going to dwell secure. Guess what? You're going to dwell secure. He's the one that makes this promise. And he tells us about it more in Ezekiel 34. Unfortunately, we don't have time to read it. Take a look later this afternoon. If you want to take some notes, write down Ezekiel 34 and read verses 22 to 28. You can actually read to the end of the chapter, but that section there tells us that this shepherd... He uses the word shepherd, is going to be over the whole flock, and he's going to keep them safe. He's going to keep them safe. Micah 5.4 ends with this statement, for now, in that time, not now, like in Micah's day, now in the time when he's born, and he brings all the remnant together, and he stands on on Mount Zion, and he shepherds his people, and they dwell secure. It says, for now, he shall be great to the ends of, Of the earth. The scope is worldwide. Listen, Jesus is our ultimate shepherd. Don't seek shepherding elsewhere. He's the shepherd. Can some people be under shepherds and point you to him? Yes. If they point you elsewhere, say, no, thank you. If they're pointing you to Jesus, say, I want to hear this because he's the shepherd. Point me to the shepherd. Always point me to the shepherd. And if this pulpit ever speaks and points anywhere but the shepherd, say, time for you to go, pal. It's been nice knowing you. Thank you for your time. But we need someone who's going to point us to the shepherd. He's the ultimate shepherd. As we finish this passage out, what we want to know is this. In the face of insecurity, ultimate security. In the face of insecurity, ultimate security. Let's repaint the picture. I know you've heard the picture. I want to paint it again. In verse 1, gather to fight a losing war. Verse 2, a ruler will arise from unlikely places. Verse 3, from feeling abandoned to restoration. Verse 4, the ruler will care for both spiritual and physical needs. Very good. 
verses 5 and 6, God will fight for his people. Look what it says. We're going to skip over that first line for just a second. We're going to come back to it. And when the Assyrians, when the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him, seven shepherds and eight priestly men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. I want to do something. This is not my typical way of interpretation. I really believe that verses 5 and 6 is typological. What do I mean by that? Meaning, what God did to the Assyrians is what God is going to do to every enemy that comes up against his people when the king is ruling. Now, what did God do to the Assyrians? Remember the Assyrians came in and they took the northern ten tribes of Israel? Yes, they did. Then they started to take the, the, the cities of the southern tribes, and they were on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And, and, and Hezekiah is repenting, God, uh, I, I'm wrong, please help us. And you know what God did, shockingly, when God, someone cried out and said, God, help us, God actually did this. He helped them. Why? Because they went to the right place. 185,000 men of war on the doorstep of Jerusalem. They're sleeping in their camps. The next morning, the next morning, they were going to decimate Jerusalem. All the people would be done and they'd be intermarried forever. There'd be no more Israel. Oh, wait a second. Whose goings forth who have been from old, from everlasting? Oh, the ruler being spoken of went out. This one from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, this ultimate shepherd that makes them secure and, and dwell safely, this one went out the night before, and 185,000 Assyrians died that night. They breathed their last breath. Sennacherib, that cocky, ungodly human, like every coward does when their forces are undermined, runs home and his sons kill him in their pagan temple. God uses that illustration and he uses the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod. Okay? The land of Nimrod is more a reference to Babylon, which is why I think this is typological. He's saying every, whether it's Assyrians or Babylonians, whether it's Gog or Magog, whether it's the people from the east, the people from the south, the people from the north, it doesn't make any difference where they come from. When they come... Will make you secure. They will dwell secure. Why? How can we be so confident? Where does all this confidence come from? Look at the beginning of verse 5. And this one shall be peace. Now your ESV will say their peace. Your New American Standard will say our peace. But there ain't no there and there ain't no our in the text. It just says this one shall be peace. Because that's who he is. Jesus is peace. He's our peace and he's their peace. He's, he's the peace of heaven. He's the peace of earth. He's peace everywhere. He is peace. He's the ultimate security. Listen, you look around the world, it's a mess. You've got ISIS and ISIL. You've got North Korea. You've got people and, and things going on in Africa. There's stuff going on all over the place. There's stuff that happens down in downtown Providence every night. You've got people going into schools and shooting people. You've got people going on to army bases, navy bases. You've got people going on military installations and shooting people. You think you're safe? You're not safe. Oh, wait a second. 
Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe in the face of all this insecurity, maybe you know the one who offers the ultimate security. Maybe you know this ruler spoken of in Micah chapter 5, the one who there is no one on this earth like, who there never has been anyone like, and there never will be anyone like except him. Do you know this ruler? There's no one like him. You want security in the midst of our current chaos? You want ultimate security? It's only found in Jesus. He is our peace. He is the prince of peace. He is the author of peace. He is the one who brings us into a peaceful relationship with God. In him, there is eternal peace. And I can offer you today this lasting eternal peace. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. He'll give you real, unending peace. Jesus having fulfilled the perfect plan of God and dying on the cross, has paid the debt of sin that made me in conflict with the holy God. His death, his burial, and his resurrection were sufficient to fully meet the need of my eternal deficiency. When you come to trust Jesus as your Savior, you'll have every, everything that you need to please God. He's it. He's the wisdom. He's the righteousness. He's the sanctification. He's the redemption. He is our peace. Jesus is our ultimate significance. Jesus is our ultimate salvation. Jesus is our ultimate shepherd. And Jesus is our ultimate security. I want to ask you, have you trusted him? Have you trusted him? Will you leave here fully convinced of who he is and what he's provided? Believer, it's, it's, this is not an easy day we live in. But you've been called for such a time as this. To look to him. To point to him. In the face of it all, we don't need anything else. He's enough. Let's pray together. Father, we need you and we want you. Continue your glorious work. We look forward to the day that Jesus comes again as our chief shepherd. He makes all things right. We want, look forward to serving with him, serving him all the days of eternity for your glory. We pray for anyone here that's never trusted him. That even today they might experience real, lasting, eternal peace. In Jesus' name, amen.